How y'all doing that? Sure, like thank y'all for stopping by for another episode. Now look here, I didn't mess around and change the name of the podcast. It's no longer removing the illusion. The new title of the podcast is called Cigar with Uncle Maduro Podcast. Woohoo, look at that. Now since I've been doing this thing here, I you know, kind of feeling kind of good. So I wanted to make it a little bit more personal. So I wanted to identify what we're going to talk about, which is our love for cigars. And also podcast kind of symbolizes that we're going to talk about or hear something, somebody other perspective than our own thinking and our own surrounding groups. So I figured what better way to sit down with a cigar with me, Maduro, and just take a listen at something a little bit more high than our understanding so we can get some perspective on these things. So the new podcast is now entitled, or the same podcast, should I say, is entitled Cigar with Uncle Maduro Podcast. <laughs> I really like that thing there. But look at it. But the format is still the same. Before we start talking about what we're going to talk about here tonight, I'm going to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on a Romeo Juliet Crafted Pacino. Boy, I tell you, this is the reason education just can't get me nowhere in life. Now, this Romeo Juliet Crafted Placina cigar features a stunning Habana wrapper and a pina that surrounds a blend of premium Nicaraguan fillers carefully cultivated from the legendary Placina farm in Esta, Nicaragua. Available in three standard parhos and one stunning parabit, every cigar is cedar-sleeved and appointed to a Roman aromatic cigar boxes of 20. Placina puts their take on this famous Cuban heritage brand by providing the cigar aficionado with dense and delicious medium body flavors of spice, nuts, coffee, leather, and plenty of natural tobacco sweetness. Romeo Juliet crafted by Placino cigars combine the best smoke qualities of both legendary brands. Man, y'all got to order y'all's today. Now, I'm right here now. I'm on um, the website. I'm on JR Cigars, right? I'm looking at this sticky what these people say now. I'm telling y'all what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it again. Like I always tell y'all, I don't know nothing about all these nuts and flavors and spices and coffees and leathers and all that kind of stuff like that. But I do know that this is a pretty good little smooth cigar here. Now, it's kind of like in between a medium, medium and full body blend. So it's a pretty good stick. Really enjoying it so far. But see, right now it's kind of hard for me to top those Illusianos that I've been smoking. This is a good stick, but it's not better than those in Louisiana. But you know what? Like Ryan told me one time in the cigar place, when I asked him, you know, what is your favorite cigars? He said, a person's favorite cigar is the one that they smoking. No, 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 I'm sorry. I asked Ryan, what is the best cigar? He said, the best cigar to you is the one that you are smoking, that you enjoy. See, there's different levels. See, they act great these cigars, and this one is better than that one. And that may be so these aficionados who knows what they're doing. But, like, you got some fellas at a cigar spot. Some of them just smoke Padron. You know, they have their favorite brands that they smoke. Now, Padron probably doesn't compare isn't as high quality as that Illusiana, but it's still a good cigar. So, the best cigar is the one that you enjoy smoking. Plain and simple. But look at we're going to talk about some things here tonight. We're going to take a look at identity politics. Because, see, we go into this political season now, and the thing going on in this country is that it's always been going on, but now everybody is choosing sides. And everybody choosing sides because of talking points. See, this internet opened a whole lot of things up. 
you know, this this internet is kind of like back in the old days when you had the internet or television. You know, when you was married and your wife stayed in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant, the only friend she had was a next door neighbor and she ain't work either. See, but then all of a sudden women start working, going into the workforce, meeting other ladies in the workforce, single women, and start going out to these happy hours, stuff like that. And then they find out in the world there's men with bigger penises out there than their husband. See, now all of a sudden the world opened up. So now they come home to the husband, they want a divorce. No more me being barefoot and pregnant. I can go to work, I can cook the bacon, and I can bring it home, fry it up in the pan, and never, never, never let you forget that you're a man. <laughs> that, that's what the day is with this internet. It didn't open everything up now. Everything. You know, where people, you know, you just can't feed people the 10 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news anymore. So I'm saying people have more access to more information, but all information that people have, have access to is not all good XL information. To me, a lot of it is propaganda and a lot of it is personalized, personal views. So it's all about identity politics, which side you choose to be on. So before I get on in my little rant, y'all know what I do. We gonna, I'm going to kick back here and we're going to take a look at identity politics. And then I'm going to come back on the flip side and we're going to talk about this little thing a little bit. So while y'all listen to this, I'm going to kick back here with my Romeo Juliet Placina. And I'm going to enjoy this thing here. Now look, catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right now. Let's take a look at identity politics. Identity politics is a term that describes a political approach wherein people of a particular religion, race, social background, class, or other identifying factor form exclusive socio-political alliances, moving away from broad-based, coalitional politics to support and follow political movements that share a particular identifying quality with them. Its aim is to support and center the concerns, agendas, and projects of particular groups, in accord with specific social and political changes. The term was coined by the Combahee River Collective in 1977. It took on widespread usage in the early 1980s, and in the ensuing decades has been employed in myriad cases with radically different connotations dependent upon the term's context. It has gained currency with the emergence of social activism, manifesting in various dialogues within the feminist, American civil rights, and LGBT movements, as well as multiple nationalist and post-colonial organizations. In academic usage, the term identity politics refers to a wide range of political activities and theoretical analyses rooted in experiences of injustice shared by different, often excluded social groups. In this context, identity politics aims to reclaim greater self-determination and political freedom for marginalized peoples through understanding particular paradigms and lifestyle factors, and challenging externally imposed characterizations and limitations, instead of organizing solely around status quo belief systems or traditional party affiliations. Identity is used as a tool to frame political claims, promote political ideologies, or stimulate and orient social and political action, usually in a larger context of inequality or injustice and with the aim of asserting group distinctiveness and belonging and gaining power and recognition. Contemporary applications of identity politics describe peoples of specific race, ethnicity, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, economic class, disability status, education, religion, language, profession, political party, veteran status, and geographic location. These identity labels are not mutually exclusive but are, in many cases, compounded into one when describing hyper-specific groups, a concept known as intersectionality, for example, African-American, Homosexual women constitutes a particular hyper-specific identity class. History The term identity politics may have been used in political discourse since at least the 1970s. 
The first known written appearance of the term is found in the April 1977 statement of the black feminist group, Combahee River Collective, which was originally printed in 1979's Capitalist Patriarchy and the Case for Socialist Feminism, later in Home Girls, a black feminist anthology, ed. by Barbara Smith. She and the Combahee River Collective, of which she was a founding member, have been credited with coining the term. In their terminal statement, they said, As children we realized that we were different from boys and that we were treated different for example, when we were told in the same breath to be quiet both for the sake of being ladylike and to make us less objectionable in the eyes of white people. In the process of consciousness raising, actually life sharing, we began to recognize the commonality of our experiences and, from the sharing and growing consciousness, to build a politics that will change our lives and inevitably end our oppression, we realize that the only people who care enough about us to work consistently for our liberation are us. Our politics evolve from a healthy love for ourselves, our sisters and our community which allows us to continue our struggle and work. This focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. Identity politics, as a mode of categorizing, are closely connected to the ascription that some social groups are oppressed, such as women, ethnic minorities, and sexual minorities, that is, the claim that individuals belonging to those groups are, by virtue of their identity, more vulnerable to forms of oppression such as cultural imperialism, violence, exploitation of labor, marginalization, or subjugation. Therefore, these lines of social difference can be seen as ways to gain empowerment or avenues through which to work towards a more equal society. Some groups have combined identity politics with Marxist social class analysis and class consciousness the most notable example being the Black Panther Party but this is not necessarily characteristic of the form. Another example is the group MOVE, which mixed black nationalism with anarcho-primitivism, a radical form of green politics based on the idea that civilization is an instrument of oppression, advocating the return to a hunter-gatherer society. Identity politics can be left-wing or right-wing, with examples of the latter being Ulster loyalism, Islamism, and Christian identity movements, and the former being queer nationalism and black nationalism. During the 1980s, the politics of identity became very prominent and it was linked to a new wave of social movement activism. Debates and Criticism Nature of the Movement The term identity politics has been applied retroactively to varying movements that long predate its coinage. Historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. discussed identity politics extensively in his 1991 book The Disuniting of America. Schlesinger, a strong supporter of liberal conceptions of civil rights, argues that a liberal democracy requires a common basis for culture and society to function. Rather than seeing civil society as already fractured along lines of power and powerlessness, according to race, ethnicity, sexuality, etc., Schlesinger suggests that basing politics on group marginalization is itself what fractures the civil polity, and that identity politics therefore works against creating real opportunities for ending marginalization. Schlesinger believes that movements for civil rights should aim toward full acceptance and integration of marginalized groups into the mainstream culture, rather than perpetuating that marginalization through affirmations of difference. Similarly Brendan O'Neill has suggested that identity politics causes, rather than simply recognizing and acting on, political schisms along lines of social identity. Thus, he contrasts the politics of gay liberation and identity politics by saying. Peter Tatchell also had, back in the day, a commitment to the politics of liberation, which encouraged gays to come out and live and engage. Now, we have the politics of identity, which invites people to stay in, to look inward, to obsess over the body and the self, 
to surround themselves with a moral force field to protect their worldview which has nothing to do with the world from any questioning. In these and other ways, a political perspective oriented to one's own well-being can be recast as causing the divisions that it insists upon making visible. In this same vein, author Owen Jones argues that identity politics often marginalize the working class, saying that in the 1950s and 1960s, left-wing intellectuals who were both inspired and informed by a powerful labor movement wrote hundreds of books and articles on working-class issues. Such work would help shape the views of politicians at the very top of the Labor Party. Today, progressive intellectuals are far more interested in issues of identity. Of course, the struggles for the emancipation of women, gays, and ethnic minorities are exceptionally important causes. New labor has co-opted them, passing genuinely progressive legislation on gay equality and women's rights, for example. But it is an agenda that has happily coexisted with the sidelining of the working class in politics, allowing new labor to protect its radical flank while pressing ahead with Thatcherite policies. LGBT The gay liberation movement of the late 1960s through the mid-1980s urged lesbians and gay men to engage in radical direct action, and to counter societal shame with gay pride. In the feminist spirit of the personal being political, the most basic form of activism was an emphasis on coming out to family, friends, and colleagues, and living life as an openly lesbian or gay person 21 while the 1970s were the peak of gay liberation in New York City and other urban areas in the United States, gay liberation was the term still used instead of gay pride in more oppressive areas into the mid-1980s, with some organizations opting for the more inclusive, lesbian and gay liberation. While women and transgender activists had lobbied for more inclusive names from the beginning of the movement, the initialism LGBT, or queer as a counterculture shorthand for LGBT, did not gain much acceptance as an umbrella term until much later in the 1980s, and in some areas not until the 90s or even 00s. During this period in the United States, identity politics were largely seen in these communities in the definitions espoused by writers such as self-identified, black, dyke, feminist, poet, Mother Audre Lorde's view, that lived experience matters, defines us, and is the only thing that grants authority to speak on these topics, that, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. By the 2000s, in some areas of postmodern queer studies, notably those around gender, the idea of identity politics began to shift away from that of naming and claiming lived experience, and authority arising from lived experience, to one emphasizing choice and performance. Some who draw on the work of authors like Judith Butler particularly stress this concept of remaking and unmaking performative identities. Writers in the field of queer theory have at times taken this to the extent as to now argue that queer, despite generations of specific use to describe a non-heterosexual sexual orientation, no longer needs to refer to any specific sexual orientation at all, that it is now only about disrupting the mainstream, with author David M. Halperin arguing that straight people may now also self-identify as queer. However, many LGBT people believe this concept of queer heterosexuality is an oxymoron and offensive form of cultural appropriation which not only robs gays and lesbians of their identities, but makes invisible and irrelevant the actual, lived experience of oppression that causes them to be marginalized in the first place. It desexualizes identity, when the issue is precisely about a sexual identity. Some supporters of identity politics take stances based on Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak's work, namely, can the subaltern speak, and have described some forms of identity politics as strategic essentialism, a form which has sought to work with hegemonic discourses to reform the understanding of universal goals. Critiques and Criticisms of Identity Politics Critics argue that groups based on a particular shared identity, e.g. race, or gender identity, can divert energy and attention from more fundamental issues, 
similar to the history of divide and rule strategies. Chris Hedges has criticized identity politics as one of the factors making up a form of corporate capitalism that only masquerades as a political platform, and which he believes will never halt the rising social inequality, unchecked militarism, evisceration of civil liberties and omnipotence of the organs of security and surveillance. Sociologist Charles Derber asserts that the American left is largely an identity politics party and that it offers no broad critique of the political economy of capitalism. It focuses on reforms for blacks and women and so forth. But it doesn't offer a contextual analysis within capitalism. Both he and David North of the Socialist Equality Party posit that these fragmented and isolated identity movements which permeate the left have allowed for a far-right resurgence. Critiques of identity politics have also been expressed on other grounds by writers such as Eric Hobsbawm, Todd Jitlin, Michael Tomaski, Richard Rorty, Michael Parenti, Jody Dean and Sean Willens. Hobsbawm criticized nationalisms and the principle of national self-determination adopted in many countries after World War I, since national governments are often merely an expression of a ruling class or power, and their proliferation was a source of the wars of the 20th century. Hence, Hobsbawm argues that identity politics, such as queer nationalism, Islamism, Cornish nationalism, or Ulster loyalism are just other versions of bourgeois nationalism. The view that identity politics, rooted in challenging racism, sexism, and the like, obscures class inequality is widespread in the United States and other Western nations. This framing ignores how class-based politics are identity politics themselves, according to Jeff Sparrow. Intersectional Critiques In her journal article Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color, Kimberla Crenshaw treats identity politics as a process that brings people together based on a shared aspect of their identity. Crenshaw applauds identity politics for bringing African Americans, and other non-white people, gays, and lesbians, and other oppressed groups together in community and progress. But she critiques it because it frequently conflates or ignores intragroup differences. Crenshaw argues that for black women, at least two aspects of their identity are the subject of oppression, their race and their sex. Thus, although identity politics are useful, we must be aware of the role of intersectionality. Nira Uvaldavis supports Crenshaw's critiques in intersectionality and feminist politics and explains that identities are individual and collective narratives that answer the question who am slash ri slash we. In Mapping the Margins, Crenshaw illustrates her point using the Clarence Thomas slash Anita Hill controversy. Anita Hill accused U.S. Supreme Court Justice nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment, Thomas would be the second African-American judge on the Supreme Court. Crenshaw argues that Hill was then deemed anti-black in the movement against racism, and although she came forward on the feminist issue of sexual harassment, she was excluded because when considering feminism, it is the narrative of white middle-class women that prevails. Crenshaw concludes that acknowledging intersecting categories when groups unite on the basis of identity politics is better than ignoring categories altogether. Now, let's take a look at four points of identity politics. Some may seem a little redundant but file it in your head under muscle memory when you see them occur. The Leighton phrase identity politics has come to signify a wide range of political activity and theorizing founded in the shared experiences of injustice of members of certain social groups. Rather than organizing solely around belief systems, programmatic manifestos, or party affiliation, identity political formations typically aim to secure the political freedom of a specific constituency marginalized within its larger context. Members of that constituency assert or reclaim ways of understanding their distinctiveness that challenge dominant characterizations, with the goal of greater self-determination. One history and scope. The second half of the 20th century saw the emergence of large-scale political movements second-wave feminism, black civil rights in the U.S., gay and lesbian liberation, and the American Indian movements, 
for example based in claims about the injustices done to particular social groups. These social movements are undergirded by and foster a philosophical body of literature that takes up questions about the nature, origin, and futures of the identities being defended. Identity politics as a mode of organizing is intimately connected to the idea that some social groups are oppressed, that is, that one's identity as a woman or as African American, for example, makes one peculiarly vulnerable to cultural imperialism, including stereotyping, erasure, or appropriation of one's group identity, violence, exploitation, marginalization, or powerlessness, young 1990. Identity politics starts from analyses of such forms of social injustice to recommend, variously, the reclaiming, redecryption, or transformation of previously stigmatized accounts of group membership. Rather than accepting the negative scripts offered by a dominant culture about one's own inferiority, one transforms one's own sense of self and community. For example, in their germinal statement of black feminist identity politics, the Combahee River Collective argued that, as children we realized that we were different from boys and that we were treated different for example, when we were told in the same breath to be quiet both for the sake of being laid alike and to make us less objectionable in the eyes of white people. In the process of consciousness raising, actually life sharing, we began to recognize the commonality of our experiences and, from the sharing and growing consciousness, to build a politics that will change our lives and inevitably end our oppression. The scope of political movements that may be described as identity politics is broad, the examples used in the philosophical literature are predominantly of struggles for recognition and social justice by groups of citizens within Western capitalist democracies, but indigenous rights movements worldwide, nationalist projects, or demands for regional self-determination use similar arguments. Predictably, there is no straightforward criterion that makes a political struggle into an example of identity politics. Rather, the term signifies a loose collection of political projects, each undertaken by representatives of a collective with a distinctively different social location that has hitherto been neglected, erased, or suppressed. It is beyond the scope of this essay to offer historical or sociological surveys of the many different social movements that might be described as identity politics, although references to this literature are provided in the bibliography, instead the focus here is to provide an overview of the philosophical issues in the expansive literature in political theory. The phrase identity politics is also something of a philosophical punching bag for a variety of critics. Often challenges fail to make sufficiently clear their object of critique, using identity politics as a blanket description that invokes a range of tacit political failings. From a contemporary perspective, some early identity claims by political activists certainly seem naive, totalizing, or unnuanced. However, the public rhetoric of identity politics served useful and empowering purposes for some, even while it sometimes belied the philosophical complexity of any claim to a shared experience or common group characteristics. Since the 20th century heyday of the well-known political movements that made identity politics so visible, a vast academic literature has sprung up, although identity politics can draw on intellectual precursors from Mary Wollstonecraft to Franz Fanon, writing that actually uses this specific phrase, with any of its contemporary baggage, does not begin until the late 1970s. Thus it was barely as intellectuals started to systematically outline and defend the philosophical underpinnings of identity politics that we simultaneously began to challenge them. At this historical juncture, then, asking whether one is for or against identity politics is to ask an impossible question. Wherever they line up in the debates, thinkers agree that the notion of identity has become indispensable to contemporary political discourse, at the same time as they concur that it has troubling implications for models of the self, political inclusiveness, and our possibilities for solidarity and resistance. To Philosophy and Identity from this brief examination of how identity politics fits into the political landscape it is already clear that the use of the controversial term identity raises a host of philosophical questions.
Logical uses aside, it is likely familiar to philosophers from the literature in metaphysics on personal identity one's sense of self and its persistence. Indeed, underlying many of the more overtly pragmatic debates about the merits of identity politics are philosophical questions about the nature of subjectivity and the self. Charles Taylor argues that the modern identity is characterized by an emphasis on its inner voice and capacity for authenticity that is, the ability to find a way of being that is somehow true to oneself. While doctrines of equality press the notion that each human being is capable of deploying their practical reason or moral sense to live an authentic life qua individual, the politics of difference has appropriated the language of authenticity to describe ways of living that are true to the identities of marginalized social groups. As Sonia Crux puts it, what makes identity politics a significant departure from earlier, pre-identarian forms of the politics of recognition is its demand for recognition on the basis of the very grounds on which recognition has previously been denied, it is qua women, qua blacks, qua lesbians that groups demand recognition. The demand is not for inclusion within the fold of universal humankind on the basis of shared human attributes, nor is it for respect in spite of one's differences. Rather, what is demanded is respect for oneself as different. For some proponents of identity politics this demand for authenticity includes appeals to a time before oppression, or a culture or way of life damaged by colonialism, imperialism, or even genocide. Thus for example Taeyak Alfred, in his defense of a return to traditional indigenous values, argues that indigenous governance systems embody distinctive political values, radically different from those of the mainstream. Western notions of domination, human and natural, are noticeably absent, in their place we find harmony, autonomy, and respect. We have a responsibility to recover, understand, and preserve these values, not only because they represent a unique contribution to the history of ideas, but because renewal of respect for traditional values is the only lasting solution to the political, economic, and social problems that beset our people. What is crucial about the identity of identity politics appears to be the experience of the subject, especially their experience within social structures that generate injustice, and the possibility of a shared and more authentic or self-determined alternative. Thus identity politics rests on the connection between a certain undergoing and the subject position to which it is attributed, and hence on unifying claims about the meaning of politically latent experiences to diverse individuals. Sometimes the meaning given to a particular experience will diverge from that of its subject, thus, for example, the victim of sexual violence who is told they caused their own fate by taking risks, when they believe their attacker is culpable. Making sense of such interpretive gaps depends on methods that recognize the divergence between dominant epistemic accounts and subjugated knowledges. Thus concern about this aspect of identity politics has crystallized around the transparency of experience, and the univocality of its interpretation. Experience is never, critics argue, simply epistemically available prior to interpretation, rather it requires a theoretical framework implicit or explicit to give it meaning. Moreover, if experience is the origin of politics, then some critics worry that what Crux calls an epistemology of provenance will become the norm, on this view, political perspectives gain legitimacy by virtue of their articulation by subjects of particular experiences. This, critics charge, closes off the possibility of critique of these perspectives by those who don't share the experience, which in turn inhibits political dialogue and coalition building. Nonetheless, skepticism about the possibility of experience outside a hermeneutic frame has been juxtaposed, or even reconciled, with phenomenological attempts to articulate a ground for experience in the lived body, or in related accounts of complex embodiment. Recent work in black feminist philosophy has also returned to identity political language by seeking to ground political perspectives in storytelling, for example, Christy Dotson argues that a black feminism starting from personal narrative provides a practice that can undercut unknowing in settler colonial contexts. From these understandings of subjectivity, 
it is easy to see how critics of identity politics, and even some cautious supporters, have wondered how it can meet the challenges of intersectionality. Intersectionality is both an ontology and a method, with origins in women of color feminisms, especially black feminisms, Cho, Crenshaw, and McCall, Hancock. Its central tenet is that no axis of identity can be understood as separable from others whether in terms of individual experience or the political structures that underlie social stratification. To speak of people of color without distinguishing between class, gender, sexuality, national and ethnic contexts, for example, is to risk representing the experience of only some of the group's members typically those who are most privileged. To the extent that identity politics urges mobilization around a single axis, it will put pressure on participants to identify that axis as their defining feature, when in fact they may well understand themselves as integrated selves who cannot be represented so selectively or reductively. Generalizations made about particular social groups in the context of identity politics may also come to have a disciplinary function within the group, not just describing but also dictating the self-understanding that its members should have. Thus, the supposedly liberatory new identity may inhibit autonomy, as Anthony Appiah puts it, replacing one kind of tyranny with another. Just as dominant groups in the culture at large insist that the marginalized integrate by assimilating to dominant norms, so within some practices of identity politics dominant subgroups may, in theory and practice, impose their vision of the group's identity onto all its members. For example, a common narrative of U.S. feminist history points to universalizing claims made on behalf of women during the so-called second wave of the feminist movement in the late 1960s and 1970s. The most often discussed, and criticized, second-wave feminist icons women such as Betty Friedan or Gloria Steinem are white, middle-class, and heterosexual, although this historical picture itself too often neglects the contributions of lesbian feminists, feminists of color, and working-class feminists, which were less visible in popular culture, perhaps, but equally influential in the lives of women. For some early radical feminists, women's oppression as women was the core of identity politics and should not be diluted with other identity issues. For example, Shulamith Firestone, in her classic book The Dialectic of Sex, argued that racism is sexism extended, and that the black power movement represented only sexist co-optation of black women into a new kind of subservience to black men. Thus for black women to fight racism, especially among white women, was to divide the feminist movement, which properly focused on challenging patriarchy, understood as struggle between men and women, the foundational dynamic of all oppressions. Such claims about the universality of gender have therefore been extensively criticized in feminist theory for failing to recognize the specificity of their own constituencies. For Dan's famous proposition that women needed to get out of the household and into the professional workplace was, Bell Hooks pointed out, predicated on the experience of a post-war generation of white, middle-class married women limited to housekeeping and child-rearing by their professional husbands. Many women of color and working-class women had worked outside their homes, sometimes in other women's homes, for decades, some lesbians had a history of working in traditionally male occupations or living alternative domestic lives without a man's family wage. Theorizing the experience of hybridity for those whose identities are especially far from norms of univocality, Gloria Anzaldua, for example, writes of her mestiza identity as a Chicana, American, raised poor, a lesbian and a feminist, living in the metaphoric and literal borderlands of the American Southwest. Some women from the less developed world have been critical of northern feminist theory for globalizing its claims. Such moves construct third-world women, they argue, as less developed or enlightened versions of their first-world counterparts, rather than understanding their distinctively different situation, or, they characterize liberation for northern women in ways that exacerbate the exploitation of the global poor by supporting economic conditions in which increasing numbers of western women can abuse migrant domestic workers, 
for example. The question of what a global feminism should make of identity political claims, or how it should conceive solidarity among women from massively different locations within the global economic system remains open. Further complicating intersectional methods, the very categories of identity that are taken to intersect may themselves be thought of as historically contingent and variable. To take the example of race, despite a complex history of biological essentialism in the presentation of racial typologies, the notion of a genetic basis to racial difference has been largely discredited, the criteria different societies, at different times, used to organize and hierarchize racial formations are political and contingent. While some human physical traits are in a trivial sense genetically determined, the grouping of different persons into races does not pick out any patterned biological difference. What it does pick out is a set of social meanings with political ramifications. The most notorious example of an attempt to rationalize racial difference as biological is the US one-drop rule, under which an individual was characterized as black if they had one drop or more of black blood. Adrian Piper points out that not only does this belief persist into contemporary readings of racial identity, it also implies that given the prolonged history of racial mixing in the U.S. both coerced and voluntary very significant numbers of nominally white people in the U.S. today should be reclassified as black. In those countries that have had official racial classifications, individual struggles to be reclassified, almost always as a member of a more privileged racial group, are often invoked to highlight the contingency of race, especially at the borders of its categories. And a number of histories of racial groups that have apparently changed their racial identification Jews, Italians, or the Irish, for example also illustrate genealogical theses. The claim that race is socially constructed, however, does not in itself mark out a specific identity politics. Indeed, the very contingency of race and its lack of correlation with categories that have more meaning in everyday life, such as ethnicity or culture, may circumscribe its political usefulness, just as feminists have found the limits of appeals to women's identity, so Asian Americans may find with ethnicities and cultures as diverse as Chinese, Indian, or Vietnamese that their racial designation itself provides little common ground. That a U.S. citizen of both Norwegian and Ashkenazi Jewish heritage will check that they are white on a census form says relatively little, although in a post-Trump U.S., it arguably says more about their experience of their identity, or indeed of their very different relationship to anti-Semitism. Tropes of separatism and the search for forms of authentic self-expression are related to race via ethnocultural understandings of identity, for example, the U.S. Afrocentric movement appeals to the cultural significance of African heritage for black Americans. Critical engagement with the origins and conceptualization of subjectivity also informs post-structuralist challenges to identity politics. They charge that it rests on a mistaken view of the subject that assumes a metaphysics of substance that is, that a cohesive, self-identical subject is ontologically, if not actually, prior to any form of social injustice. This subject has certain core essential attributes that define her or his identity, over which are imposed forms of socialization that cause her or him to internalize other non-essential attributes. This position, they suggest, misrepresents both the ontology of identity and its political significance. The alternative view offered by post-structuralists is that the subject is itself always already a product of discourse, which represents both the condition of possibility for a certain subject position and a constraint on what forms of self-making individuals may engage in. There is no real identity individual or group base that is separable from its conditions of possibility, and any political appeal to identity formations must engage with the paradox of acting from the very subject positions it must also oppose. Central to this position is the observation that any claim to identity must organize itself around a constitutive exclusion. An identity is established in relation to a series of differences that have become socially recognized. These differences are essential to its being. If they did not coexist as differences, it would not exist in its distinctness and solidity.
Entrenched in this indispensable relation is a second set of tendencies, themselves in need of exploration, to conceal established identities into fixed forms, thought, and lived as if their structure expressed the true order of things. When these pressures prevail, the maintenance of one identity, or field of identities, involves the conversion of some differences into otherness, into evil, or one of its numerous surrogates. Identity requires differences in order to be, and it converts difference into otherness in order to secure its own self-certainty. The danger of identity politics, then, is that it casts as authentic to the self or group a self-understanding that in fact is defined by its opposition to a dominant identity, which typically represents itself as neutral. Reclaiming such an identity as one's own merely reinforces its dependence on this other, and further internalizes and reinforces an oppressive hierarchy. This danger is frequently obscured by claims that particular identities are essential or natural, as we saw with race. For example, some early gay activists emphasized the immutable and essential natures of their sexual identities. They were a distinctively different natural kind of person, with the same rights as, white, middle class, heterosexuals, another natural kind, to find fulfillment in marriage and family life, property ownership, personal wealth accumulation, and consumer culture. This strand of organizing, associated more closely with white, middle class gay men, with its complex simultaneous appeals to difference and to sameness has a genealogy going back to pre-Stonewall homophilic activism. While early lesbian feminists had a very different politics, oriented around liberation from patriarchy and the creation of separate spaces for woman-identified women, many still appealed to a more authentic, distinctively feminist womanhood. Heterosexual feminine identities were products of oppression, yet the literature imagines a utopian alternative where woman identification will liberate the lesbian within every woman. The paradigm shift that the term queer signals, then, is a shift to a model in which identities are more self-consciously historicized, seen as contingent products of particular genealogies rather than enduring or essential natural kinds. Michel Foucault's history of sexuality famously argues that homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy onto a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphrodism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration, the homosexual was now a species. Although Foucault is the most often cited as the originator of such genealogical arguments about homosexuality, other often neglected writers contributed to the emergence of this new paradigm. Such theories still coexist uneasily with popularized essentialist accounts of gender and sexual identity, which purport to look for a particular gene, brain structure, or other biological feature that is non-interactive with environment and that will explain gender normative behavior, including sometimes trans identity, and same-sex sexual desire. At stake are not only epistemological and metaphysical questions about how we can know what kind of thing sexual orientation might be, but also a host of moral and political questions. Some gay activists thus see biological explanations of sexuality as offering a defense against homophobic commentators who believe that gay men and lesbians can voluntarily change their desires. Indeed, much of the intuitive hostility to genealogical or post-structuralist accounts of sexuality within gay and lesbian communities even today seems to come from the dual sense of many individuals that they could not have been other than gay, and that anything less than a radically essentialist view of sexuality will open the door to further attempts to cure them of their homosexuality, through conversion therapy, for example. Nonetheless, it is perfectly possible to argue that the experience of one's bodily feelings and concomitant sense of self having an origin solely inside oneself is both deeply felt and in the sense real, and an experience with a history larger than the individual. Furthermore, as Eve Sedgwick argues, no specific form of explanation for the origins of sexual preference will be proof against the infinitely varied strategies of homophobia. 
That sexual orientation takes on a metaphysical life of its own elides the fact that it is generally sexual behavior not an abstract identity that is the object of moral disapprobation. Queer politics, then, works to trouble the categories gay and lesbian, as well as heterosexual, or indeed other categories of social thought in general, and point out that the homo-slash-hetero dichotomy, like many others in Western intellectual history that it arguably draws on and reinforces, is not only mutually implicated, but also hierarchical, heterosexuality is superior, normal, and originary, while homosexuality is inferior, deviant, and derivative, and masquerades as natural or descriptive. These conflicting positions within gender and sexual politics are exemplified in the history of the expansion of gay and lesbian organizing to those with other queer affiliations. Those describing themselves as gay and lesbian wondered if bisexual and transgender, and then intersex, two-spirit, asexual, and more, people shared sufficiently similar experience and interests to make an identity political movement. Indeed, this suspicion sometimes worked in the opposite direction, not all trans or intersex people have understood themselves to be queer, or to share the same political goals as gay and lesbian organizers, for example. The debate finds a parallel in a form of challenge to the inclusion of trans women in women-only spaces, or indeed, their identification as women in the first place. The possibility of feminist solidarity across cis and trans lines hinges on the centrality of sex and gender identities and how those are understood to political spaces and organizing. Traditions of trans, mestiza, and cyborg feminist politics have resisted the claim of sameness and recommended models that embrace the historicity of subject positions and intrasubjective plurality. While the common charge that identity politics promotes a victim mentality is often made glibly, Wendy Brown offers a more sophisticated caution against the dangers of ressentiment, the moralizing revenge of the powerless. She argues that identity politics has its own genealogy in liberal capitalism that relentlessly reinforces the wounded attachments it claims to sever, politicized identity thus enunciates itself, makes claims for itself, only by entrenching, restating, dramatizing, and inscribing its pain in politics, it can hold out no future for itself or others that triumphs over this pain. The challenge that identity politics retains attachments to hierarchized categories defined in opposition to each other and over-identifies with artifactual wounds has been met with more discussion of the temporality of identity politics, can an identification be premised on a forward-looking solidarity rather than a ressentiment-laden exclusion? It also invites consideration of whether pain is always a regressive, fixed ground of identity claims, or whether it might be a legitimate reality for mobilization, as Tobin Sieber suggests of disability. Some proponents of identity politics have suggested that post-structuralism is politically impotent, capable only of deconstruction and never of action. There are, however, political projects motivated by post-structuralist theses. For example, Judith Butler's famous articulation of performativity as a way of understanding subject development suggests to her and others the possibility of disarticulating seamless performances to subvert the meanings with which they are invested. Drag may be constituted such a disarticulation, although other critics have suggested other examples, Adrian Piper's conceptual art seeks to disrupt the presumed self-identity of race by showing how it is actively interpreted and reconstituted, never determinate and self-evident. Linda Zerali discusses the world-building work of the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective a feminist group that rejects a subject-centered view of women's injured status in favor of a protensive practice of freedom. 3. Liberalism and Identity Politics Institutionalized liberal democracy is a key condition of possibility for contemporary identity politics. The citizen mobilizations that made democracy real also shaped and unified groups previously marginal to the polity, while extensions of formal rights invited expectations of material and symbolic equality. The perceived paucity of rewards offered by liberal capitalism, however, spurred forms of radical critique that sought to explain the persistence of inequity.
At the most basic philosophical level, critics of liberalism suggested that liberal social ontology the model of the nature of and relationship between subjects and collectives was misguided. The social ontology of most liberal political theories consists of citizens conceptualized as essentially similar individuals, as for example in John Rawls' famous thought experiment using the original position, in which representatives of the citizenry are conceptually divested of all specific identities or affiliations in order to make rational decisions about the social contract. To the extent that group interests are represented in liberal polities, they tend to be understood as associational, forms of interest group pluralism whereby those sharing particular interests voluntarily join together to create a political lobby. Citizens are free to register their individual preferences, through voting, for example, or to aggregate themselves for the opportunity to lobby more systematically, example by forming an association such as a neighborhood community league. These lobbies, however, are not defined by the identity of their members so much as by specific shared interests and goals, and when pressing their case the marginalized subjectivity of the group members is not itself called into question. Finally, political parties, the other primary organs of liberal democratic government, critics suggest, have few moments of inclusivity, being organized around party discipline, responsiveness to lobby groups, and broad-based electoral popularity. Ultimately conventional liberal democracy, diverse radical critics claim, cannot effectively address the ongoing structural marginalization that persists in late capitalist liberal states, and may even be complicit with it. On a philosophical level, liberal understandings of the political subject and its relationship to collectivity came to seem inadequate to ensuring representation for women, gay men, and lesbians, or racial ethnic groups. Critics charged that the neutral citizen of liberal theory was in fact the bearer of an identity coded white, male, bourgeois, able, and heterosexual. This implicit ontology in part explained the persistent historical failure of liberal democracies to achieve full inclusion in power structures for members of marginalized groups. A richer understanding of political subjects as constituted through and by their social location was required. In particular, the history and experience of injustice brought with it certain perspectives and needs that could not be assimilated through existing institutions. Individuals are oppressed by virtue of their membership in a particular social group that is, a collective whose members have relatively little mobility into or out of the collective, who usually experience their membership as involuntary, who are generally identified as members by others, and whose opportunities are deeply shaped by the relation of their group to corollary groups through privilege and oppression. Liberal democratic institutions have persistently grappled with the challenge of recognizing such asymmetries of identity while stressing procedural consistency and literal equality in institutions. Thus for example the 20th century U.S. discussion of the categories of race organized around colorblind versus color-conscious public policy. Colorblindness that is, the view that race should be ignored in public policy and everyday exchange had hegemony in popular discourse. Drawing attention to race whether in a personal description or in university admissions procedures was characterized as unfair and racist. Advocates of color-consciousness, on the other hand, argued that racism would not disappear without proactive efforts, which required the invocation of race. Affirmative action requires statistics about the numbers of members of oppressed racial groups employed in certain contexts, which in turn requires racial identification and categorization. Thus those working against racism face a paradox familiar in identity politics, the very identity they aim to transform must be invoked to make their case. Critics have also charged that integration, or, more provocatively, assimilation, is a guiding principle of liberalism. If the liberal subject is coded in the way Young suggests, then attempts to apply liberal norms of equality will risk demanding that the marginalized conform to the identities of their oppressors. For example, many commentators on the politics of gender and sexuality objected to campaigns defending gay marriage or otherwise representing queer people as living up to heterosexual, white, or middle class, 
norms, on the grounds that these legal developments assimilate same-sex relationships to an existing dominant model, rather than challenging its historical, material, and symbolic terms. If this is equality, they claim, then it looks suspiciously like the erasure of socially subordinate identities rather than their genuine incorporation into the polity. One of the central charges against identity politics by liberals, among others, has been its alleged reliance on notions of sameness to justify political mobilization. Looking for people who are like you rather than who share your political values as allies runs the risk of sidelining critical political analysis of complex social locations and ghettoizing members of social groups as the only persons capable of making or understanding claims to justice. After an initial wave of relatively uncompromising identity politics, proponents have taken these criticisms to heart and moved to more philosophically nuanced accounts that appeal to coalitions as better organizing structures. On this view, separatism around a single identity formation must be muted by recognition of the intersectional nature of social group memberships. The idea of a dominant identity from which the oppressed may need to dissociate themselves remains, but the alternative becomes a more fluid and diverse grouping, less intent on guarantees of internal homogeneity. Finally, the literature on multiculturalism takes up questions of race, ethnicity, and cultural diversity in relation to the liberal state. Some multicultural states notably Canada allegedly aim to permit the various cultural identities of their residents to be preserved rather than assimilated, despite the concern that the overarching liberal aims of such states may be at odds with the values of those they claim to protect. For example, Susan Mahler Oaken argued that multiculturalism is sometimes bad for women, especially when it works to preserve patriarchal values in minority cultures. If multiculturalism implies a form of cultural relativism that prevents judgment of or interference with the private practices of minorities, female genital mutilation, forced marriage, compulsory veiling, or being deprived of education may be the consequence. Oaken's critics countered that she falsely portrayed culture as static, internally homogeneous, and defined by men's values, allowing liberalism to represent a culturally unmarked medium for the defense of individual rights. For many commentators on multiculturalism this is the nub of the issue, is there an inconsistency between defending the rights of minority cultures, while prohibiting those, allegedly, cultural practices that the state judges illiberal? Can liberalism sustain the cultural and value neutrality that some commentators still ascribe to it, or to what extent should it embrace its own cultural specificity? Defenders of the right to cultural expression of minorities in multicultural states thus practice forms of identity politics that are both made possible by liberalism and sometimes in tension with it. Increasingly it is difficult to see what divides anything called liberalism from anything called identity politics, and some commentators have suggested possible rapprochements. And lastly, for Contemporary Philosophical Engagement with Identity Politics Since its 1970s origins, identity politics as a mode of organizing and set of political philosophical positions has undergone numerous attacks by those motivated to point to its flaws, whether by its pragmatic exclusions or more programmatically. For many leftist commentators, in particular, identity politics is something of a bete noire, representing the capitulation to cultural criticism in place of analysis of the material roots of oppression. Marxists, both orthodox and revisionist, and socialists especially those who came of age during the rise of the new left in Western countries have often interpreted the perceived ascendancy of identity politics as representing the end of radical materialist critique. Identity politics, for these critics, is both factionalizing and depoliticizing, drawing attention away from the ravages of late capitalism towards superstructural cultural accommodations that leave economic structures unchanged. For example, while allowing that both recognition and redistribution have a place in contemporary politics, Nancy Fraser laments the supremacy of perspectives that take injustice to inhere in cultural constructions of identity that the people to whom they are attributed want to reject. Such recognition models, she argues, 
require remedies that valorize the group's groupness by recognizing its specificity, thus refeeing identities that themselves are products of oppressive structures. By contrast, injustices of distribution require redistributive remedies that aim to put the group out of business as a group. If Fraser's argument traces its intellectual roots to Marx through critical theory, similar arguments come via Foucauldian genealogy. In her 2008 book Against Recognition, for example, Lois McNay argues that identity claims that are at the heart of many contemporary social movements are represented as demands for recognition in the context of an oversimplified account of power. Although theorists of recognition typically start from a Hegelian model of the subject as dialogically formed and necessarily situated, they too quickly abandon the radical consequences of such a view for subject formation, McNay argues. The subject of recognition becomes both personalized and hypostatized divorced from the larger social systems of power that create conditions of possibility for particular identities. In this way, the debates around subject formation that are at the heart of philosophical discussions of identity politics parallel conversations between Habermasians and Foucauldians about the possibility of a transcendental subject that can ground practices of critique. This varied debate has a long half-life and contemporary manifestations. For example, Glenn Coulthard argues that the shift in colonial state indigenous relations in present-day Canada from unabashed assimilationism to demands for mutual recognition, especially of cultural distinctiveness, cannot be an adequate decolonization strategy. Reading the intellectual history of the politics of recognition through Hegel to Sartre to Fanon to Ben Habib, Coulthard argues that this discourse is a reiteration, and sometimes a cover-up, of the patriarchal, racist, and colonial relations between indigenous people and the Canadian state that it purports to ameliorate. Instead, he defends a paradigm of critical indigenous resurgence that draws on cultural history and economic practices that are neither essentialized nor romanticized, but that also do not rest on concession-oriented relation-building with the existing Canadian state. Audra Simpson makes a similar argument, suggesting that the politics of recognition in the context of settler dispossession denies its own history, assuming that recognition for indigenous people can occur within the context of such largely state-driven performance art as reconciliation, which casts the injustices of settler colonialism as having occurred in the past and requiring apology, rather than acknowledging the wide-ranging material political consequences of land theft and indigenous sovereignty. From the early days, the presentation of a dichotomy, or a choice, between recognition and redistribution, or the cultural and the economic, was challenged by those who pointed out that the intersectional politics of gender, sexuality, and race had always been engaged and understood through the structures of capitalism. Given how many contexts these debates must generalize, it is hard to see how one can draw any conclusions about the merits of a thing called identity politics over and above any other kind. Nonetheless, in the post-2016 political world, after the Brexit referendum in the UK and the election of Donald Trump in the US, as well as following the rise of nationalist and slash or austerity right parties in many other countries, recrimination from diverse political perspectives has again focused on the alleged overemphasis on identity politics. The decline of class-based politics, the growth of economic inequality, and the disaffection of working-class white men, critics suggest, was neglected by both political party leaderships and grassroots organizers, in favor of campaigning around issues attaching to feminism, queer politics, and anti-racism. For example, Francis Fukuyama argues that the 20th century was the century of the economic in politics a contest between a left defined through workers' rights, social welfare, and robust redistribution, and the right's drive to reduce government by shrinking the public sector and selling publicly owned services and replacing them with private market delivery. By contrast, he suggests, the 21st century has seen the left focus less on creating broad economic equality and more on promoting the interests of a wide variety of marginalized groups, such as ethnic minorities, immigrants and refugees, women, 
and LGBT people. The right, meanwhile, has redefined its core mission as the patriotic protection of traditional national identity, which is often explicitly connected to race, ethnicity, or religion, Fukuyama 2018, 91. This allegedly renders the left less able to address trending inequality, and redirects its focus to cultural issues, and validating interiority and achieving recognition all of which racist nationalists can easily co-opt. Today, the American creedal national identity, which emerged in the wake of the Civil War, must be revived and defended against attacks from both the left and the right. On the right, white nationalists would like to replace the creedal national identity with one based on race, ethnicity, and religion. On the left, the champions of identity politics have sought to undermine the legitimacy of the American national story by emphasizing victimization, insinuating in some cases that racism, gender discrimination, and other forms of systematic exclusion are in the country's DNA. 108. Identity politics, Fukuyama concludes, is the lens through which politics in the U.S. is refracted, with the turning away from economic inequality on the left providing a convenient evasion for the right. Fukuyama writes with a hostile outsider's dismissal of the social movements he labels as identity politics, yet the bifurcation he describes between the economic and the identitarian is echoed in a 2018 special issue of the Marxist journal Historical Materialism, in which the editor's introduction describes approvingly subsequent articles that show how the left has abrogated the notion of identity as being materially rooted, and contingent on historical and geographical context. In its place, we see the hegemonic acceptance of an inherently reactionary alternative, one which perceives race, gender, and sexuality as dearly held, self-fashioning, and self-justifying essences. Such a concession has not only reinforced the class-slash-identity binary, but also led to a stifled political imagination in which identity-based politics can only be conceptualized within a liberal capitalist logic. Kumar ETAL 2018, 5-6 In response to this challenge, defenders point out again how political organizing through contemporary feminism and anti-racism by way of movements like hashtag MeToo or Black Lives Matter, for example has not shied away from the economic components to their analyses. The binary between economic critique that marks discussion of redistribution, and discussion of group identity that characterizes recognition, may in moments be conducted as if the two were separate. The idea, however, that proponents of treating gender, sexuality, or race as intersecting axes of individual meaning and social stratification have consistently neglected the economic aspects of their analyses is hard to sustain. As Susanna Danuta Walters points out, the critique of identity politics is dependent upon seeing identity as only the province of the disenfranchised and marginal as well as upon seeing white men, including the working class, straight men who are the imagined community of the neonationalist right, as somehow not having identity, Walters 2018, 477. Described by Paul Joshua as anti-identity identity politics, this position, as exemplified in his description of the All Lives Matter response to Black Lives Matter, is predicated on the taken-for-grantedness of a pre-established racist system which from centuries of de jure and de facto practices is now fixed almost silently into the socio-political infrastructure. Despite its universalist pretensions, it remains a cloaked identitarian politics which through a hegemonic narrative, re, presents itself as a radically inclusionary counter-narrative, 2019, 16. Every time this article is revised, it is tempting to write that identity politics is an outmoded term, overdetermined by its critics and part of a reductive political lexicon on both the Marxist left and the neoconservative right. Yet in 2020, still, there are recent iterations of the recognition versus redistribution debate, ongoing arguments about the demands of intersectionality, and new forms of political resistance to the movements that circulate under the sign identity politics. Both flexible and extensible, 
identity political tropes continue to influence new political claims, and extensive literature approaches disability, for example, as a diverse and dynamic set of experiences of social injustice that sediment self-understandings among the disabled and motivate a politics that insists dominant cultures change their exclusionary social practices, Davis 2017-1997, Silvers 1998, Siebers 2006, 2008, Kafer 2013. Perhaps most important for philosophers, any idea of identity itself appears to be in a period of rapid evolution. Attempts to decode human genetics and shape the genetic makeup of future persons, Richardson and Stevens 2015, to clone human beings, or to xenotransplant animal organs, and so on, all raise deep philosophical questions about the kind of thing a person is. As more and more people form political alliances using disembodied communications technologies, the kinds of identities that matter seem also to shift. Behaviors, beliefs, and self-understandings are increasingly pathologized as syndromes and disorders, including through the identification of new types of person, in turn generating possibilities for new forms of identity politics. Increasingly, this long list of confounding variables for identity political thought is finding philosophical cohesion in anti-identarian models that take somatic life, effect, time, or space as organizing concepts. For example, both new materialisms and neo-vitalist philosophies, in their political contexts, share an emphasis on becoming overbeing, a post-humanist reluctance to award ontological priority to any shared characteristics of human beings, Wolf 2010, a skepticism about discourses of authenticity and belonging, and a desire to focus on generative, forward-looking political solutions, Bambra and Margie 2010, Cole and Frost 2010, Connolly 2011. The lines between humans and other animals, Haraway 2007, Donaldson and Kimlicka 2014, 2016, between the living and the non-living, Sharp 2011, and between objects and subjects, Venet 2009, are radically challenged. The COVID-19 pandemic shows more clearly than ever how the edges of human bodies are porous with our environments. To varying degrees these emphases are echoed in other process ontologies whether Anne-Marie Moll's work in medical anthropology, 2002, the reintroduction of bodies as socially and biologically dynamic and interactive forces in forming political subjectivities, Proto V 2009, or the ways indirect, technologically mediated experience shapes so much of our contemporary identities, Tickle 2011. This mass of shifts and contradictions might be thought to mark the end of the era of identity politics. Whatever limits are inherent to identity political formations, however, the enduring rhetorical power of the phrase itself indicates the deep implication of questions of power and legitimate government with demands for self-determination that are unlikely to fade away. <laughs> identity politics. What y'all think about that? You know what, when I think about identity politics, I think about Richard Pryor. Back in the day, one of his albums, Richard was saying, you know, when I was growing up, I had no heart for the fighting. He said, I couldn't fight a lick. He said, whichever side was winning, that's my side. <laughs> he said, you know, I couldn't fight. So, well, whichever side was winning, that was my side. You know, and that's kind of like what identity politics is. You know, to me, now this is now, y'all heard what them folks say, now this is just from my perspective, you know, what I've been seeing here lately, you know, identity politics is like, you know, that's my side, you know, that's my team, you know, everybody choosing teams now, everybody choosing sides now, and a lot of times, you know, especially with this LGBT movement, you know, that really kicked everything off, that LGBT movement, you know, when, you know, when the gay folks start wanting to get married and, 
they felt like they were unrepresentative and all kind of old negative things that they figured was against them. So, you know, they band together and they got their little group. And now they all identify. But the internet, like I was telling y'all about, even the housewife, the internet just opened everything up. It opened everything up where people that normally wouldn't have a voice have a platform now. Where they can go on and spew their nonsense, whether it's true or they false. See? And now, you know, everybody get these little, they get these social followings, these social uh, followings. Well, that's identity politics. You know, where like-minded people group together. Now, back in the day, it was a thing where people used to say that iron sharp is iron. You know, meaning that if I had a different perspective, a different view from you, you know, we both, we still can communicate, we still can talk, and we can come to some, we can come to some type of understanding of each other's points. That makes each of us strong. But a lot of times these days, people are getting together in these hurdles, in these, in these huddles, and they only listening to one side of everything. And with this political climate that we have, we see it more and more with the advancement of the internet and open communication. See, that's why over in China, places like that, North Korea and all Russia, you know, they don't have this open internet thing, but just everybody, people that don't have any uh, background or experience and knowledge in anything, just their opinion, and just go on and spew a whole lot of stuff out their mouth. See, they don't have those kind of avenues in countries like that. See, that's why they're thinking more so people say control their people. But at the same time, you don't want a whole bunch of confusion. When you got a whole bunch of confusion in your country, you got what America is starting to look like. Now, freedom of speech is a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. But the thing about it, like I say, is that, you know, a lot of people, you know, they don't have the understanding and they don't have the research background to really take all this information that's being bombarded at them. Because now I look at YouTube, and now I'm starting to see a lot of black conservatives on YouTube. You know, first it was that gal, Candace Owens. Now I'm seeing a lot of more black conservatives, you know, giving their opinion. Like I told y'all before, if I had to categorize myself, I don't want to put myself in, you know, no identity, identify with any political group. But the way that I think, I'm, I'm more of a conservative. I'm more of a liberal conservative if I had to put a label on myself. Now... My thing is, I'm almost like Richard Pryor. Whichever side winning, that's my side. You know, whichever, me personally, whichever side can economically benefit me. I really don't care too much too much for Reddit, you know, how a person talk. You know, like they say about, you know, our current president, they say, well, you know, he don't think when he talk. You know, a lot of things that he say, he shouldn't say. You know, but I look at a man by what he do. That's what I look at. Because myself, I know I'm not no fancy talker myself. Now, I'm a really good listener, I'm a really good learner, but when it comes to regurgitating information, I just can't do it that articulate and clear. And see, that's like this little pie talk here. This little pie talk here kind of helps me. It helps me in my communication. So when I get at work a lot of times, I have to do these presentations. And I'll get nervous in front of people, the crowds, and start stuttering. So this little pie talk kind of helps me. So when I look at our President Trump, and people say, what well, things did he say? Things that come out of his mouth. I don't look at people doing pay too much attention to that. Because I know I got a hankering to say some crazy stuff myself at some unopportune times. But see, but this is the action of a man that I look at. Now, I look at the way the economy is going. The economy has been going pretty good until this virus thing kicked in. Now, just out of speculation myself, I was laughing at somebody at work. I say, well, this virus thing, 
you know, this 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 virus thing was started by the Democrats and the Chinese. <laughs> they want to slow the economy down. They want to slow Trump down. So you know, this is a, this is the first opportunity, but they just didn't know it was going to take off the way that it did. See, there was no reason for the focus to shut the country down the way they shut the country down. Matter of fact, I was talking to somebody talking about the 1918 pandemic flu, the Spanish flu. They didn't shut, they didn't shut the country down back then. Make it so bad about it is that we have more technology and information than they did. We we twenty we twenty twenty. Them folks was nineteen eighteen. They put their face masks on and they went on about their business. Now this is no this this is no disrespect to any elderly folks out there, but you just don't know what the truth is. You know you protect yourself the best way that you can, but you don't shut a whole country down. You see, and that's what but would make me so skeptical. Skeptical about this thing when I look at this thing. I'm saying 1980s uh, pandemic. It was a worldwide pandemic, which was a legit pandemic, you know. And they shut the country down. They put face masks on. They went on about their business, you know. A lot of other countries did the same thing. But you 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 shut your whole country, your whole economy down for months, and then on top of that, you have these civil unrest. So the Democrats, you know, I think they didn't plan for this, but the Democrats is using this thing. And all these folks who identify now, at one time I'll tell somebody, black folks was actually Republicans. Coming out of the Civil War, I mean coming out of um coming out of slavery and the Civil War also, blacks were Republicans. Black wasn't Democrats. You know, blacks didn't become Democrats until all the handouts. LBJ, I think it was when they when this uh social Social welfare thing when this welfare thing kicked in, you know, you just can't give anybody nothing for free. I keep telling y'all that you can't give people nothing for free. You give somebody something for free, they get hooked on it. That's why a drug dealer, when he got a little drugs, he offer them drug dealers for free because he you know once he get hooked on them, ching ching ching. And that's how it is even in politics. You know, politics is the same way. Once you give somebody something for free for their vote, you got them for life. That's why we got these career politicians up there. Get a career politician like them Nancy Pelosi has been in there. And I look at I keep telling folks, what have people done for you lately? Instead of you identifying saying that that's my side or that's I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, and all that kind of stuff. You you got but you need to look at the real true issue. And not so much the issue. You need to look at the folks. How long these folks been up there in Washington, DC? And what have they done for you lately? See, I'm a firm believer what Janet Jackson said. What have you done for me lately? See, and when you got people that's been in Washington, D.C.'s areas like that, all their life career politicians, and they ain't did nothing for you lately or in the past, why you keep voting them in there? You vote them in there because you identify, right? You identify for whatever reason, whether it's uh, historical identification, you know, whether it was something that was lineage passed on through lineage, your family always voted a certain kind of way and followed first kind of people. It's like a football team. I'm, I'm going to tell you what identity politics is actually like. And I just thought about this. It's like a football team. You know, these Democrats and Republicans. A football team, say my Detroit Lions. And I, you know what I just said? The first thing I said, my mom, I said my Detroit Lions. Like I own a team. I got stock in a team. See, the first thing we do is we take ownership of stuff that we don't, that we don't have no, we don't have no uh, investment in. You see, first thing I said was my Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions football team changes every year. The players change every year. 
Good players or bad players, they change every year. But I stick with my Detroit Lions because I stick with my Detroit Lions. I stick with the name, the label of the Detroit Lions. The players change. Good players or bad players. That's like when we look at these politicians, Democrat, Republic, or whatever it is, they change. But you stick to the name. They change and you don't look at the character and the historicity of the people that's in those parties. Like my Detroit Lions, they get good players, they get bad players. Most of they get bad players because they, they can't win nothing. Ain't never won nothing. But I stick with them because they my Detroit Lions. See, that has been ingrained inside my head. It has a form of attachment. And it's, it's a no good team. It's evident by the history of them. They're no good. They don't win anything. They pick the wrong players. So when you look at these political parties, you don't look at what kind of rhetoric coming out of their mouth at these conventions. All this horse duke and hockey come out of their mouth. You look at what have they done over the course of their career. If I get a quarterback on the Detroit Lions and I look at that quarterback, he ain't won nothing nowhere. What makes me have hope that this year that he going to be any better? Now, you think about that point there. What makes me think he going to be any better? This guy that played for nine teams in the NFL. He's only been a starter one time out of them nine teams. He's been a backup. What makes me think that he going to bring any type of value to my losing team? He ain't. He don't have a history. He don't have a pedigree. So you got to look at these politicians the same way. You got to look at these politicians and say, well, what have this politician done for me? What over the course of their years have they done for me? You see what I'm saying? I would rather, I would rather take a chance on somebody who ain't been a career politician all their life than one that has been a career politician all their life. Because you can look at their track record. And then it's like recycled quarterbacks. You look at these quarterbacks in the NFL, they just recycle. One bag, he leave that team, he go to another team. They recycle bad quarterbacks, just like politicians. They just recycle. And then, then one day they come up to come up to want your vote for president. But what have they done for you over the course of their career? You don't look at that because what you, we identify with, we identify with the team. We don't identify with the players on the team. We identify with the team. The team is the Democrats, the team is the Republicans, the team is the Liberals, the team is the, the Whig Party, or whatever it is. We identify with that label and not the players that's in it, the ones who actually is going is gonna, is gonna to propose policy. And when we identify with these political causes, we don't look at, we identify with the cause, but we don't identify with the folks who run in the cause, whether they really have your intentions. Just like I was listening to this thing here on uh, this, uh, this football player, he has his little pod, YouTube pod talk, and he said he sat down and read the Black Lives Matter mission statement. Now, I'm going to do that one day. We're going to go over that. And he said, surprising to him, is that it says that the, one of their main mission is to, is to remove the patriarch. 
Now you talk about the patriarch is the head of the family. When you talk about moving the patriarch out, you got a problem. That's the problem now. Ain't no fathers in the homes in some of these communities. Whether it's white, black, or whatever. White fathers leave the home just as just as much as black fathers. But but the politicians want you to focus on black folks because they wouldn't know black folks is the easiest one to brainwash, to keep us thinking that we on the ground. Don't you think white folks get divorced? Don't you think white fathers leave their doggone uh, wives and kids? Uh, don't you think there's a lot of white folks out there, white kids growing up in broken homes too? You think this is just a black thing? But see these politicians, you know, with the political agendas, they have you thinking that. To keep you from looking at that person's agenda. Whether that agenda is right for you or right for not. Like I was saying on my other talk, it's called weaponizing racism. That's what is going on now. That's what the political parties is doing. See the whole thing, like I say, whether y'all like Donald Trump or not, I can go and say, Fred, I don't even like saying folks' name on my little pod talk here, but, you know, these are our politicians and our presidents. And this is just my opinion and not the facts. Now, like I say, you know, people don't like Donald Trump because of things that he say and how he say things. Well, like I tell y'all, I ain't got no problem with that because I'm not the most articulate person that myself when I talk. I can't remember stuff off the cuff of my head. But you give me some time to think, I bet I can out-thank you. But I can't out-talk you. If you put Barack Obama and, and, um, and, and, uh, and uh, Trump next to each other, Obama make him look bad. But see, that's talk, that's rhetoric. See, my daddy always says shiny things will always get your attention and have you run into a brick wall. Tiny things, all that beautiful talking, that's why I didn't vote for him. I didn't vote for Obama. I never voted for Obama. I don't like fancy talking. Fancy talking is just dressing. Like my dad used to say, too. He said, if you get around an old gal, she wear a whole lot of perform, something ain't, or perfume, something ain't clean. Because she's trying to cover up something. I look at what a person do, what a person has done. So when I look at politicians, I'm across the board. Now, I'll tell you that one thing that I don't like that I'm seeing with uh, one of these proposals that I'm hearing Donald Trump talking about is getting rid of Social Security. Privatize Social Security. Like they did people pension funds. When you privatize Social Security, you put Social Security on the stock market. That means the stock market goes up and the stock market goes down. So folks can lose their whole pension in a bad stock market. Use your whole pension. All your pension gone. If they privatize Social Security. Privatized Social Security is giving your Social Security to somebody like Goldman Sachs, uh, Sachs or Lieberman Brothers or one of these investment per, uh, uh, fidelity, one of these uh, investment fund, portfolio fund to manage Social Security in a volatile market like the stock market. That's the only thing that I'm not liking when I'm hearing about some of these proposals that the, Repo that the Republicans are talking about with Social Security. Because we see how it worked for pension funds. We see how that went, right? With these 401ks, the market goes down, so your, your 401k go down. 
You can't privatize something like Social Security is so vital to a nation and and and, uh, and, and people retirement if they live long enough. Not on no volatile market like the stock market. That's the only thing I don't, I'm seeing so far that I don't like about what the Republicans are talking about. See, race stuff like that, that don't bother me. And the reason why it don't bother me is because I understand that you have to rise above some things. I understand that playing fields ain't even. Playing fields ain't never been even. So I understand that when it comes to race, I have to ensure that I put myself in the best possible position to succeed and to go home every night. My thing of it is, I look at how the country is going economically. I look at who is a who is who is mostly trying to damage this country. You see, I'm old Sunbow, Louisiana. I grew up on the on, on the notion that it takes hard work to get where you want to go. It don't take somebody giving you no money. It takes hard work. It takes information to get where you need to go to make yourself self-sufficient. But see, it's not about that anymore. Because these politicians out here today is, they panic to y'all folks, they want to give you stuff to hook you. They want to give you all this unemployment because they crashed the market. Because they stopped businesses from opening up. Now they want to give you a handout. Get you addicted on handout, and you'll be just, you'll become another uh, generation welfare. You become a generation socialist. Who pays for all these handouts? But I understand people got to survive, and I understand that people in this, this economic position today is not because they own fault. It's because of politics, identity politics. Has shut this country down because folks want to get Donald Trump out of this out of, out of office so bad you crash the economy. You want to get him out of this so bad. You want to get one man out of office so bad that you make three hundred and some million people suffer because of a, a, a virus or just a common flu that ain't no worse. A whole lot less worse than the 1918 Spanish flu. Who did, like I said, get ain't shut the economy down. Go back and read on it. They put their face masks on. They were about their business. The country has to keep going. Now, I understand that some people ain't going to survive. You just got to take care of yourself. It's called personal responsibility. And this is the thing that politicians are trying to get rid of, trying to get people hooked on. Trying to get people hooked on them. Like a pimp trying to get a, a, a prostitute guy hooked on him. They don't want you to be self-independent, self-sufficient. When you're self-sufficient, you got your own mind. You enacted folks for nothing. It's called personal responsibility. Personal accountability. So you got to count for yourself. If there's a flu or bug out here somewhere like that, then you need to stay at home. You need to protect yourself. You don't shut a whole country down because of something like this. And I know it may sound insensitive, but you don't shut no country down. Because when you shut your country like this down, the whole world keep going. 
When you stop the whole world, keep going. China, keep going. Russia, keep going. All these countries keep going while you stop. Because you're playing politics. And the people, we get to the point, we, we have gotten to the point where that's my team. You know, I'm for gay rights. I'm from, I'm, I'm from uh, um, No Child Left Behind. I'm for, I'm for, I'm for, I'm for, I'm for. Have you, have you ever looked at the mission statements with some of these groups that we are starting to identify with? Uh, have you ever? Like, I got to take a look at that Black Lives Matter thing. I listened to one fellow, he was like, well, he said Black Lives Matter from a national movement. I guess it was started by some white lady. And, or some black girl. It was a white lady and a black girl, something like that. But he said that's on a national level. He said, but the Black Lives Matter, there's the ground roots level. Which is a lot of different fractions of factions. The local ain't a part of the big Black Lives Matter. You see? And then they get all this funding. Whenever you get all this funding from all these wherever... It's a political agenda. You keep that thing from going. You keep this stuff going because it's working. Now let me tell y'all something. If the Democrats get in the office, this is just my personal opinion. If the Democrats get in the office, watch how fast this, this virus becomes just a common cold or a common seasonal flu. Watch. Watch how they try to start opening businesses back up. If the Democrats win, y'all watch this. Watch how fast there's supposed to be a cure for it. Y'all watch this. All y'all out there with your identity politics, that's my team. My team is only one team. My team is called the economy. That's my team. My team is the economy. That's my team. Personal accountability. Taking personal responsibility for your own self, for your own safety. Let me tell you something. I didn't travel to many states working. And the one thing I don't do is try to put myself in a position or an area in the city that's not healthy for me. See, I've lived in cities for years and never even went on certain sides of town because you know what? That's not that's not where I'm going. That's where I came from. I was out in LA. Two years out there in LA. And Low Valley. Down there. Never did I ever say, well, I want to go to Compton. Or I want to go to Long Beach. Or I want to go to Watts. I ain't got nothing in Long Beach, Compton, or Watts. Nothing against that, but I don't know them them areas. I got to stay out of them out of them areas because I heard they ain't healthy, at least for me. Now, like I say, no disrespect to anybody who lived there. I'm just telling you, you have to have some personal accountability. I can't go to LA and, and I'm going to go hang out in Watts or Compton, you know, with the, with, with the bros. Them, that, them dudes probably tear my head off. If they don't do it, the police will. Because the police don't, can't identify me from one of the residents there. So I'm not going there. Even like now, as an old man, I don't like being out at dark. After when it get nighttime, I can be at home at nighttime. 
personal responsibility, a personal responsibility, personal accountability. I ain't got, I don't have no business out there running them streets at night. What out there in the street that night? You riding us at night, got you you're smoking your weeds and your and, and, and your drinks and all. You, it's a free country. You do whatever you want to do, but you gotta be smart about the things that you do. That is my opinion and not the facts. But we identify. We identify people that don't even live in our community. You know what? I heard that one thing when uh, Trump was talking about putting that border up, right? You don't want to put that border wall up. And they say that Nancy Pelosi in California, she lives in a gated community with a big wall. Right? With a big wall around it. And she hollering about Trump and that wall. Now my thing, I'm thinking to myself now, I'm about as confused as a black, I'm not about as confused as a fly flying around with one wing. They're in a circle. I'm thinking to myself, what's going on here? This woman talking about Trump building a wall and how racist it is to the Mexicans, but yet she lived behind a wall. Why don't she tear her wall down that she lived behind? See, that would get me. Let me tell you something. A lot of these folks who promising y'all things, ask them would they live under the same conditions that you live under. Let's see if they can live under the same conditions that they propose. She talking about tell Trump he ain't building no wall. That's racist. But yeah, she lived behind a wall. She would she she won't tear that wall down or get her house in a neighborhood that ain't got no wall. Like these people down out, out there in California, the politician, the governor, governor, uh, I can't think of that boy name in California, not the, the governor and the mayor of California of uh, Los Angeles. They lost their mind. The homeless people is doing everything. You got you, you got you got a four million dollar house. Right across the street from the $4 million house, you got 20 tents. Now, you're paying all the taxes for that $4 million house, and when you come out your game right across the street, you got 20 tents. This is true. And, you, and police don't mess with them, and the mayor won't let you bother the homeless. And I say, okay, that's fine. I ain't got a problem with that. So why don't we take some of these homeless people and send them to the mayor's mansion? Y'all go camp out in front of the mayor's mansion. Let's see how he like that. He probably would like that, would he? He probably would like he walked outside and had a bunch of homeless people out there, would he? Probably wouldn't like that. But yeah, you have people with four, five, six million dollar homes in LA, homeless people just everywhere. That's because you shut the city down. You running businesses out with your political views, with your political authority. Them Democrats. Now I'm not telling y'all who the vote y'all for who y'all want to. I'm just telling y'all they Democrats. Y'all move where y'all want to. But if you're going to identify with any movement, with any group, with any anything, make sure you do your homework and you do your research on the players in that group. And don't be like me with my Detroit Lions. All these years we've been losing, I ain't one time I said, I mean, I'm going to give me another football team. I'm going to leave the Lions alone. They ain't going to win. I'm going to give me No, I said, I'm not losing Detroit Lions. And every year they get different players, and the caliber kind of players they get ain't won nothing. And I get the same results. Like in politics, when you vote Democrat, you vote Republican, or you vote whatever you vote, because you vote along party lines, because you identify with that group, you don't look at the players. The history of the players. Because if the history of the players, they've been there, 
and they've been there and they've been recycled, you're going to get the same results in the next four years, in the next eight years. Whether you identify with Black Lives Matter, whether you deal, identify with the LGBTQT, uh, ZHY, whatever them, thing, them abbreviations is, I don't know no more. Whether you identify with that, do your homework on the people that's in that movement, who's in charge. See what they about. Stop identifying with stuff you don't know nothing about because of a label. We always, always want to be a part of a label. We want to wear Gucci. I identify with Gucci. I identify with, with uh, Boone and Birch. We all want to identify with a label. It's like I heard that one thing about Tommy Hilfiger. Tommy Hilfiger, he, don't, he didn't even want black people wearing this stuff. But black people run out there buying this stuff like they going crazy. Until one day he sit on he sit down on the interview and said he don't he don't design his stuff for black people. And he don't care if they buy it. And then all the black people got mad. Oh Tommy Hilfiger. Oh, we're gonna boycott Tommy Hilfiger. Well look, man, you should did your homework on Tommy Hilfiger before you went out there and spent all that money. Because you can't take none of that stuff you bought that with Tommy Hilfiger name on to the pawn shop. They gonna give you nothing for it, it ain't worth nothing. But now the man tell you that. He don't want your money, in other words. He ain't designing this stuff for you. Now you want to get mad at him. Well, you've been identifying. We've been identifying all these years, giving him all your money. To what you're mad about now. You didn't do your homework. I'm just saying. We have to stop accepting these labels because they sound good. And we got to start doing our homework of the character and the content of the people. The people that's supposed to be leading us in charge of us. You know, it's a shame when we got we got to pick between two presidents with a, almost 160 years between the two of them on this earth. Between the two of them, both of them almost eight years old. There is no young vibe with new ideal president candidates. No, because everything is a puppet government. The figurehead with a puppet with, with somebody else with a whole bunch of other people pulling the strings, but we don't do our homework. We just identify with Democrat or Republic. That's the only choice that's outside of our head. And I'm going to tell you something. Each time we do that, we get the same four years and we get the same eight years. They just both take turns. One take the condom off, one put the condom on. He take the condom off, he put the condom on. And they feed us folks their rhetoric. And we join their team and we stick with them. Like I stick with my Detroit Lions. <laughs> All right, y'all. I got to get out of here, dog. Look. Hey, I've got here. You know, I know y'all. Now, y'all know when I be talking about things, I just go off in any kind of little direction. But that's all right. We just talking here. Ain't like somebody going to listen to the pod talk here. But look at When y'all get a chance, y'all go to y'all local cigar spot and y'all pick up this Romeo Juliet Pacino. This is a really good stick. Right? Like I tell y'all, it ain't as good as them Louisiana, the Louisiana I've been smoking. This still is a pretty good stick. So support your local cigar spot. You want to go online to JR or CI or Holtz and get you some boats for you, uh, bulk cigars for your humidor, do that too. Ain't nothing wrong with that. But look at again, I didn't change the name of the pie talk here. The pie talk is now Cigar with Maduro. <laughs> Ain't that something? I, I almost forgot. Cigar with Maduro podcast. <laughs> no more removing the illusion. But look, the same format. I sure like to thank y'all for stopping by. And like I tell y'all in closing, always, y'all take care of everybody out there. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'all first. All right now.